back to the BDSM show where we're talking about all things budgeting, debt, savings and money management uh, with part of the broader B project uh, and uh, if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more about that, head on over to b.com.au. Uh, as you know, my name is Ivan and welcome back to another episode. Uh, all advice today is general in nature. Talk to a professional or talk to Chris. Um, today, we're spending some time talking about diversification. Uh, we're joined by Chris Briggy, CEO and founder of Stockspot. Uh, and we're going to talk about your journey. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Good, good to see you. By the way, Chris just told me that uh, he, had a, he, had a, he had a child six, six weeks ago, his second. So, uh, so. Well, he's bad eyes, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay. That's, that's fine. Um, for, for the guys listening in on, on, on the podcast, uh, I'm, you won't see it, but I'm sure we can send a photo for you. Um, so you started in 2013 and you wanted to go in and give uh, Australians access to expert investment advice and portfolio management. How, how did you go about um, starting Stockspot? Well, yeah, it takes me back a few years now. I think it's seven or eight years ago that I started the business. Um, yeah, I mean, back then, you know, you're, you're doing a podcast now, you know, speaking to a lot of people in fintech, and fintech's obviously, a, you know, a hot area at the moment, and wealth tech. You know, these terms didn't really exist back then, so it was a bit of an uphill battle starting a business back then and, you know, pulling together a, a website and some partners and a first version of the product. But, I mean, ultimately, I, I had a vision that, you know, more Aussies should be able to invest uh, in a smart, sensible way online um, and it was very difficult to see a way that most people could do it. I mean, you could go and use an online broking service, but, you know, that's very self-directed and, and not really something a lot of people are after, especially people that aren't, you know, market-savvy people or interested in watching markets. You know, you could go and see an advisor, but typically you need a lot of money to see an advisor and not everyone has a million dollars lying around to, to pay advisor fees. So I thought there was a gap to provide, you know... You've got some expensive advisors, man. <laughs> No, I mean, UBS actually just increased their minimum client from $1 million yeah. to $2 million. So, I mean, any of the big guys, you won't talk to you unless you're paying them you know, a big chunk in fees. And, yeah, advisors are leaving the industry every week at the moment. So, mm. yeah, ultimately I thought there was a gap in the market to give people good investing advice to help them grow their savings. And, you know, th there was a lot of uh, other trends showing that um, services would be provided online in the future, not just face-to-face uh, -face or, you know, through traditional channels. So... You know, I thought it was a you know the right time to provide online service. You know, helping people invest in low cost index funds, which are ultimately the the best thing for most people. Mm. Hey, and your background is actually a portfolio manager. Um, I think you won the share game a couple of times. Uh, but, you, know, you you were a you were a proper active trader. Um, that's it's a big shift. Yeah, I mean, it's probably what gave me my kind of, you know, aha moment. I mean, as, as a trader and someone that I traded since I was like 10 or 11 years old and, and then later went on to do it professionally, you realise how hard it is to actually beat the market and how few people can actually do it consistently and the amount of time and effort and information you need to be able to achieve it. So you kind of realise that this sort of fallacy that's put out there that, you know, individuals can easily beat the market or pick stocks to do well or even that you can pick a fund manager to do it well is really kind of not the truth. And to me, that, that led me to, for most people, index funds is the right thing to do. Um, now, absolutely, there are a small group of people that can trade professionally and do well. 
Um, I think the problem for the average person out there is you don't get access to those people because they're either smart enough to know that they um, can price their services at a rate where they earn most of the return. And that's what a lot of good fund managers do is they make sure that they're capturing a lot of their alpha generation in their fees. Or if traders are, are good enough, they don't need to, your money. I mean, there's plenty of people throwing money at them and they can work at a hedge fund or you know a private family office to do well. So ultimately, you know, active management can work for a few people, but um, yeah, the average person won't have access to those people. And so just buy the market, you're going to do as well as you know, 90% of people anyway. Mm. I've, uh, I've, I've noticed this uh, as, I've, as I've sort of started working at, at, um, and, and running open markets, um, how, how true that is. And obviously we, you know, we, 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 we do direct retail self, self-directed as well. And, uh, you know, when anyone goes and says... Stats on, I mean, I think some of the US brokers have shown what percentage of their um, clients actually beat the market. I mean, would you have some idea of that? Uh, well, uh, you'll be uh, glad to know that most of our bigger clients, um, you know, sort of the there's a lot of 10 mil plus accounts uh, that, that exist through the open markets network, and most of those guys are investing in ETFs. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's where the smart money is these days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's 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 definitely a growing growing space. So um, robo advice is probably one of the most misconstrued terms out in the market um how would you describe robo advice to, to people who go in and say what is this stocks by robo it's just another robo yeah well, i mean we didn't really choose the term it kind of got uh, the moniker got given to us um, i think you know when you sort of say the word robo advice to kind of the average punter out there they have this sort of perception that there's some sort of uh, you know a room full of machines making decisions for their investing when ultimately you know the, the word robo is just about automating a lot of you know laborious, time-consuming, costly tasks that, you know, an advisor or a broker or someone that was managing your money in the past um, would have had to do and charge you for. And ultimately, a lot of those processes can be automated. Um, You know, the automation makes it lower cost, but also there's a huge behavioral benefit because if you automate, for instance, when you rebalance your portfolio, you're no longer, you know, prone to the sort of mistakes that people make when they're managing their own money. So, you know, a great example was in March this year. Obviously, the sentiment was pretty poor around the world. Share markets were crashing. They were down 35 or 40%. You know, most of the professionals I saw out there said, you know, don't invest now, wait for things to turn around. Our um, system actually said now's the time to rebalance all the portfolios. And we sold assets that had done well, bonds and gold, and we bought um, Australian shares when they were down, you know, 35, 40%. Now, it didn't feel like the right thing to do. Certainly, the sentiment didn't sort of indicate it was the right time to do it. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's had a huge impact on our clients. You know, the Aussie market's up 40% since we rebalanced. Um, I don't think many active managers or many people managing their own money, you know, would have had the guts and, and the systems or the processes to do that at that time. And I think that's kind of the big benefit of robo-advice is automating things and removing the behavioral, behavioral aspect. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. You know, you, you would have obviously come across this as a as a, as a trader um, from from your trading days. Good, what defines a good trader from a not such a good trader is that emotional um, disconnect uh, from from money from your trading plan and, and whatever, and just mechanically yeah, about, yeah, going exactly. through. And- You're totally right. I mean, yeah, that's a similarity between what we're doing and, and good professional traders is you need a process and you need a risk management process. Um, and that process you can't override if you kind of feel a certain way because otherwise that's when you get into, into problems. 
it, big, big problems as we've I've seen. I used to deal with some work with with some futures traders, um, retail futures traders, and uh, that's yeah. There's that, some horror stories there. But anyway, you learn that markets can go much further than you expect on the upside and the downside. So it's you know people have to wear a lot of pain. Good old they're eventually right. Good old good old Keynes theory. <laughs> but um, and so. In terms of what what Stockspot does in in the robo space, I, I mean, we were chatting about this the other day. Like, you were, I think, the first, um, and I'm pretty sure right now you're the largest uh, in the space. Um, what do you guys do differently to to some of the other guys that that, that are in the space? Well, I mean, in in overseas markets, I think they've approached you know approached it a bit differently. So. You know, the biggest guys in the US and, and North America and Europe generally, they have had, a, you know, a very sort of digital, um, you know, like many other digital businesses, digital marketing model really where, you know, they have a good product but ultimately they have to spend a lot of money to get customers to kind of join. Um, and, and a lot of these global robo-advisors have raised, you know, 100, 200 or even $300 million to essentially fund client acquisition. Um, you know, I never thought that was the right model because ultimately I thought wealth management's about building up trust and track record and that takes time. And so we really haven't gone out and spent a lot on the marketing side. You know, we've been focused on building a, a, a really good product that users find easy to use, that's, you know, explains things well, that includes education, which I know you're passionate about as well to help people make the right decisions. We've made sure that the investment process is sound, that we get the right asset allocation and, and ultimately that benefits clients. And then it's, you know, Time is what ultimately helps to build a business. When you have a good track record and a good product, um, your customers tell their friends and their family and, you know, other people discover you in other ways and, and that's how you grow. So, you know, the big difference is probably the way that we've approached growth, that we haven't gone down the traditional, you know, throw money into the top of funnel marketing and that we've just let the business grow organically by investing in the product. Um, I mean, the uh, what is this that gets talked about a lot is from our asset allocation perspective. We we have an asset in our portfolios that's it has been quite controversial in the past. It tends to be less controversial now, but we've always had an allocation to gold in the portfolios. We actually increased that allocation um, about three years ago, and, and that's actually served our clients really well. So gold is up, you know, a, a huge amount over the last two years, and and just having that asset in our portfolios has allowed us to outperform. 100% of diversified funds in Australia. Um, so that's something like we're quite proud of is that we're, you know, we're, we're not just sort of copycats and we don't just copy the asset allocations of the big super funds or, you know, what, what, what all the asset um, consultants tell you to do. Um, you know, we sort of think independently around what the right mix is and I think, we've, you know, we've shown that to our customers too. Sorry, I think my, my internet cut out there for, for a couple of seconds. Um, oh, maybe it was yours. I don't know. Uh, it was one of our internets. You just said you outperformed 100% of funds. Like you were the top performing fund is, is what you're saying. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, of diversified funds. So obviously there's single asset funds that, you know, in, in global equities, you know, can do better because they're just in one market or one sector. But when it comes to diversified funds that are across multi-assets and, I mean, we've, we've just used the Morningstar data to validate this, but Morningstar tracks 600 different funds. And over, yeah, well, I mean, over all the time periods, we've, we've beaten them all. So, I mean, it, for one, it really just shows that, you know, keeping a cost low, getting the right asset allocation um, is, is really what's important. And all of the other bells and whistles that, 
you know, a lot of other funds kind of add on, don't add a lot of value, which was always our theory um, from the start. Chris, these themes of uh, honesty and financial services, it's like, you know, it's its unheard of, right? <laughs> you know, like you look you look at the, you know, how much trust people have for the financial services, it's pretty minimal. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's refreshing. That's why, yeah, I guess both of us are building tech businesses is we want to restore some of that credibility <laughs> to the industry, right? <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it always takes one bad egg, and and then you know, and then there's there's all the work kind of, uh, and we take a step back again. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, th- there are bad eggs out there, and, and I mean, that's also why I'm involved from a regulatory perspective. I joined two ASIC um, committees because you know the worst thing for a, a new category like robo advice is bad eggs, or you know, just for online broking or any kind of industry. So you want to make sure that you know everyone that's operating and and you know growing their customers is doing so in the right way because unfortunately one blow up tarnishes, you know, the whole industry and, and really affects everyone. So, I mean, everyone has to do their job to make sure that, you know, FinTech and wealth, wealth tech kind of, you know, grows in a way that benefits the end customer and there's no you know, dangers down the line. I think ASIC should bring in capital punishment for, uh, for the bad eggs and, uh, you know, that, that, that'll clean them up. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a, another conversation entirely. <laughs> I've got, I've got too much Russian in me. Hey, last week, um, uh, one theme that came up a fair bit and, and has, has been quite a recurring theme is, is sustainability. Uh, ultimately, ESG. Do you think that that has a, a, a place in in robo advice as well in over the next five ten years? I mean, from our perspective, it's all just about. Um, customer choice and and you know it was one of the biggest requests from our customers over the last few years was they wanted the ability to um, you know ensure that their portfolios reflected their values um, you know and everyone's values are, are different so it's actually quite a difficult thing to build but I mean the benefit we've had is over the last few years there's been a proliferation of new products out there that are uh, focused on you know it's a broad term but ethical or sustainable investing but ultimately you know, removing companies that society or you know, a particular group of people consider to be you know, not, not kosher, not ethical, and um, adding, you know, extra emphasis in companies that are doing good for society. And you know, although there's sort of question marks around what impact this actually has on, on society, I think Bill Gates, you know, has made some interesting comments in that area that, you know, he thinks if you actually want to have impact, go and do something that has impact or invest in an area that has impact taking money away from areas of the economy that are having negative impact may or may not actually have a, you know, the, the impact that you want. Um, but in any case, I think people want to feel a certain way about how they're investing. And, and so, you know, it was, it was something we definitely heard our clients saying, and that's why we now offer, you know, our portfolios and also an, a sustainable version of all of our portfolios. So people that choose that can, but yeah, I mean, we're not, you know, we're not a political lobbyist and, and, and we don't sort of, you know, judge people that don't sort of select that. You know, we just think it's a choice that people should be able to have. Uh, is that, it sounds like, was that your uh, your new one? Did you actually tell me, is it a boy or a girl? Oh, um, uh, my uh, new kid, it's a little boy. Little boy, congratulations. That yeah. just, I can't believe you didn't tell me. Anyway, um, until today. Um, we just ran a poll just before. Would you be comfortable picking your own investment stocks on your own? Uh, 60% said yes, uh, 20% said no, and 20% said not sure, which I, I don't know what, what not sure means in that case. What, in terms of people who are actively picking stocks, and you know the stats, I know that you, you talk about them a fair bit in, your, in, in, in the blog, you talk about them a fair bit 
um, on LinkedIn and, and, and other mediums. And what, what do you say to people about picking their own investments? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, if you're polling customers of online brokers, you probably expect most of them would want to be <laughs> So I'm surprised if only 60%, I assume it would be 90%. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think with all things of investing, I mean, experience is the best way to learn. So, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't try and discourage people that really passionately want to pick stocks. It's a great education. For me, learning about picking stocks was the best edu- educator of why most people shouldn't be picking stocks, but I had to kind of go through that process to kind of learn it. So I think like most things in life, you know, trying things is the best way to learn. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the one lesson I would say from when I first started trading stocks in the late 90s um, was that, you know, in, in good markets, you can get a false sense of your um, your, your ability. ability. Um, and so that can lead to decisions that ultimately you regret because you end up taking on more risk or, you know, not managing your portfolio in a sensible way. So, you know, being aware of your own ability is probably the most useful thing as an investor or just I, I think in life generally, knowing what you know and what you don't know and constantly being trying to learn and challenge yourself. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, if people are passionate about picking stocks, you know, do so but with the full knowledge of, you know, the fact that, you know, only a very small percentage of stocks drive the market return. So you've got to really work hard to find them and, and be in the group of people that are constantly in those stocks and out of the bad ones. Isn't it, come on, isn't it just as easy as going on Reddit and reading and, and kind of and, and buying? I mean, surely that's, that's modern investment philosophy yeah, I mean, right there, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems it was the same in the 90s. You just go into hot copper and, and uh, find out which stocks to buy. I think it's maybe migrated onto YouTube and Reddit and some other platforms as well. I mean, there's always going to be you know, a group of people that want to do this, you know, for their own education, um, you know, just to kind of learn. So, I mean, that's, that's great. It makes the market more efficient and ultimately all of our clients can, can uh, benefit from that. That's a very political answer. <laughs> Um, hey, tell me, so in terms of um, uh, demographics, uh, what, what kind of clients are typically the clients that go on onto, onto platforms like Stockspot? Um, what, what are you seeing? Well, it's changed over the years. I think when we were kind of a, a very early stage startup, you know, we didn't have a track record. And so it was a lot of early adopters, people that were engineers and people in tech that kind of got it. They liked the idea of automation. They liked the online access. They kind of got the investment strategy and they realized it was kind of best practice. So early days, it was a huge percentage of our clients were like engineers and, you know, people in software and in tech. Um, but as as the, the categories matured, as more people are aware of ETFs and robot bias, it's kind of become a bit more kind of mainstream and broad. So, I mean, we, we see customers from all over the place. We see you know, farmers from, you know, regional towns all the way to, you know, doctors to, you know, high net worth individuals investing, you know, millions and millions of dollars. So, I mean, it really varies a lot. I think people kind of discover investing at different points in their life and also discover the benefits of investing passively in, in a low cost way at different points. And so when people have that aha moment, they usually come across us and, and that's sort of when they start investing. But We've definitely seen a broadening in who our clients are from the early days. Um, and I think that makes sense. It was, um, for me, it was always, yeah, something I thought would be disproven was a lot of the cynics of robo-advice in the early days said, oh, it's great for people with $2,000, but for anyone seriously investing, um, they'll never consider it. But I think 
a lot of those people that are seriously investing that have had advisors or, you know, private client, um, you know, bankers basically helping with their investing, they now have the ability to compare that performance versus our performance. And a lot of people we're seeing come to us have basically seen that they've paid all these fees and got access to all these funky uh, hedge funds and alternatives and, and forests in their portfolios. But ultimately, their returns are much worse than just a simple ETF portfolio. So I think that realisation is now happening for more people with um, bigger balances like family offices and, and high net worth individuals. And that will probably be the high growth area over the next few years for robo advice. So therein is a very good segue into a question that, that I don't remember if I've asked you before, but, but I'm going to ask it now anyway. Um, and we're running a poll on this as well, um, which, which is, is there still value in traditional advice at the moment? 100% said yes for a holistic overview, but I don't think everyone answered. So question to you, is there still a value in the longer term? Is there still value in traditional advice or does technology overtake it? I think in, in some areas, um, absolutely. I think there's some areas that are difficult to automate or difficult to, you know, um, create a solution like we have for investing. So I would say it kind of depends on the area of advice. Like, I, you know, I can't really see a world where structuring advice or specific tax advice is going to be, you know, 100% automated. It just doesn't lend itself to that or estate planning, for instance. You know, but you, you just make the tax system easy and then, yeah, well, you know. I mean, that's why it doesn't really work. But estate planning is a good example. Like, yeah, I mean, you can go and buy, a, you know, a, a, a templated will from the news agency and that might suit some people and, and there'll probably be a digitised version of that. But, you know, there's also a level of um, complexity for people, um, so I think, yeah, there are some areas that lend themselves to automation. Investing is one of them. I would, I would say, you know, there are others where they will probably become more automated. It might be, uh, you know, applying for home loans or insurance, I think, are big opportunities. Um, but then there are probably areas where advice, you know, will always need to be a bit more bespoke. But I think what will change in my mind is like the, the role of an advisor will go from, um, you know, unfortunately, in the past, especially with a lot of the big organisations, they are essentially just a funnel to products. Um, I think they'll become, you know, more of a, you know, a curator of lots of different um, products and services outside of like a specific suite of, of um, you know, products op offered by their mothership. Um, and, and I think that will be one of the big positive outcomes of, you know, the Royal Commission and, and some of this, you know, investigative work that's been done into financial advice. <laughs> Conflicted remuneration, huh? Uh, it's it's funny. I think that um, uh, the only people that are complaining about Royal, the Royal Commission and the impacts of it are financial advisors. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Show me the um, incentive, and I'll show you the outcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but based on that, I mean, so let's say you know we're obviously you've you've, you've alluded you know financial advisors are leaving the industry, and I think it, it's accelerating in pace. Um, I think we're we're under or we're about twenty thousand financial advisors left in Australia. I think down from twenty eight, if I'm not mistaken, um, potentially sub twenty soon. Is that? I mean, is that a is that a natural thing you think um, based on all the information that's available, or or, or do you think that it's you know, I guess is it natural attrition or is it fate? Well, I mean, I think probably based on the the old the old school structuring of fees and, and remuneration, the industry got too big. To be honest, um, you know, and, and the you know the the pool of fees available is shrinking, and, and therefore it can't justify you know the same number of people to to manage clients in the past. You know, there's kind of debates about whether that's good or bad. Ultimately, I'm I'm probably more in the camp of if advice was conflicted and not in the best interest of clients, you know, it shouldn't have happened in the first place. So 
um, you know, there's probably, you know, where there is a, a market need, there'll be digital products or other products that come to serve particular advice needs. And, you know, ASIC is very, um, you know, pro looking for ways to make it easier to provide scaled advice where there's a, you know, a business case for it. So scaled advice means advice around a specific area rather than holistic advice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I think ultimately that the vertically integrated model, you know, led to a, a world where unfortunately a lot of these advisors were essentially incentivized salespeople for products and they probably weren't adding, you know, as, as much value as they could have if there was a different um, pay structure. And, and so if they can, you know, find a new business model that works in a world where they have to be paid differently, then that's great. That means, you know, they, they deserve to exist in the old world as well and they'll continue to, you know, have happy clients and serve them well. But if, if not, then, yeah, I mean, that's what should be happening to the industry. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously their, their um, uh, feedback is that no one wants to pay for something, uh, in, especially in today's world. So, you know, so hidden fees was the way to go or at least get the, the product manufacturers yeah, to do it. Like, it never made sense. Like, it's like if, if people don't want to pay for it, like hiding the fees isn't the, the right way to solve it. it. It's coming up with a better value proposition that people are prepared to pay for. You know, tricking people into paying for something isn't the right isn't the right solution for anything. <laughs> Well, hey, look, it works for snake oil salesmen. Um, so <laughs> you know, I think uh, we're just writing another poll. Uh, so just on the back of that poll, um, uh, 33% said uh, no, they think that there's enough education for me to manage myself. Uh, 50% said yes for a holistic view. Uh, and uh, 16 said yes, I'm not confident managing my financial decisions, which is quite, quite, quite interesting. Uh, there is a belief in the market um, which it's almost like there's two things. One is people think that they know everything and, and think that they're capable of managing their own financial decisions and people that are too afraid of finance will stop due to lack of financial literacy. Do you think there's a, there's a, there's a solution in there through education, through the stuff that you, you know, companies like, like Stockspot are doing to go in and, and give people confidence to, to kind of de-jargon financial services? Yeah, I mean, our, our view is you just need to teach people kind of the basic financial lessons. Like, there aren't that many lessons out there, but if people are aware of them, you can really make much better financial decisions. Like, you know, you know, how does compounding work and what's the value of compounding in the positive and in the negative? You know, having an understanding of that, I think, already changes people's perception of, you know, uh, fees and also um, returns and relative returns of investment products versus saving products. So, you know, compounding is an important lesson. You know, saving and budgeting is an important lesson. Um, you know, there's you know probably half a dozen basic lessons that unfortunately we don't learn at school in Australia. That if people you know had them drilled into them when they were younger, they I think would make better financial decisions. So I don't know whose role that is. I mean, you know, it's probably partly kind of businesses, um, but yeah, and partly kind of ed education and school as well. I mean, I saw you, you probably saw as well the announcement from the Victorian government. Um, yeah. so they're no longer allowing banks into schools to teach kids about money. Um, now well, they didn't really teach about money. They, they taught about the bank account. Yeah, we we're teaching them about <laughs> the, the fun little um, the fun little characters like Cred that provides credit to you. Um, but but yeah, I, <laughs> Craig, Cred's an evil guy, man. <laughs> well, yeah, like I, mean, I, I mean, I think I mean you know. The, Obviously, there's a lot of nostalgia in those programs. I mean, I, I had Dolomites when I was a kid and remember putting my $2 or 50 cents in the little Velcro pouch in the little yellow book. You, you might remember it as well and, and yeah. sending it off in, in, the, in the lunch trolley and, and then getting my deposit book back 
um, you know, that, that did teach good lessons, but, you know, there is, you know, in a world that's kind of post the Royal Commission, I think rightly so, a concern around the, the true motives of businesses that are going in and educating kids, you know, under the guise of kind of education, when as a businesses they're motivated to teach them lessons in a particular way. Like, a, you know, a, a bank makes most of its money by providing credit and loans, but for a lot of people, you know, building wealth and becoming financially secure, loans and credit isn't something you should be considering or, you know, only in, in specific circumstances. So unfortunately it's another area where, you know, you know whether it's, um, you know, explicit or not, like the motivations of businesses will lead to education being a certain way. And unfortunately, that's probably why it needs to be separate from any sort of corporate involvement. I think the problem would be for government to be well-informed enough to have a good education program that's kind of balanced and, and helpful for people and, and kind of evidence-based as well. Um, because I'm sure everyone will want to put in their two cents about, you know, what you should be teaching kids. Yeah, I for one would definitely prefer that uh, that, that you and uh, some of our guests would be running that that uh, that education, uh, uh, at least uh, setting the agenda for the education as opposed to the bank, because it's kind of like Ronald McDonald teaching about how good burgers are, which yeah, exactly. you know, it's a good example. But yeah, I think I mean there's definitely a role for parents as well. Like I plan to teach my two boys, you know, about money early on, and be yeah, I was lucky. My parents were very transparent about their finances, and I think that really helped me. You know, generationally, I think that's becoming more of the trend, whereas I think, you know, one or two generations up, parents are very secretive, and so you never really learn about, you know, what's a credit card or a home loan or, or all these different mm-hmm. concepts, and you're in the dark. So hopefully, like, our generation will teach their kids, you know, smart money lessons early, and you won't need to rely on, you know, the, you know, the banks or government to do it. Um, but, yeah, it also relies on the parents being informed enough to be able to teach their kids. I think when uh, when you two boys grow up and, and by the time that you're teaching them, they'll be like, great, you know, uh, what did Chris do? He, he, your dad uh, worked really hard for 10 years and they became a millionaire. So yeah, work hard. And, and I hope that they don't listen to any of my advice and they <laughs> buy a few Bitcoins as, as uh, two-year-olds and then they, they can move out very early. We'll, we'll see. I uh, had asked the question, how do you balance a client engaging with robo-advice and knowing when they might be ready to transition to full holistic advice with an advisor? Uh, I mean, so holistic advice, in our view, you don't really need for investments at any point. Like there's no I – I wouldn't give advice to anyone differently if they're investing $2,000, $100,000, 2000000 $20 or um, or a hundred million. I think the advice is the same. So holistic advice really comes about if you're um, needing advice in different areas. And you know, if a client comes to us, for instance, with structuring questions or tax questions, we do tell them immediately you need to go get advice in those areas. You know, or estate planning or any of these areas that are outside our scope. Um, yeah, that's when you, you sort of need you know advice in those areas. I mean, holistic advice. I feel like it's a bit of a kind of concept created by the industry, but. In most cases, people don't want advice holistically. They want advice at a certain point in their life where they're making a certain decision. And so I kind of see a breaking down of holistic advice over the next few years. I don't know what you think, but where, you know, holistic advice is is replaced by sort of specific advice at different points in your life. I think the challenge the industry is grappling with at the moment is providing kind of specific scoped advice on a bespoke basis is quite expensive and most people aren't willing to pay you know, thousands of dollars for a single piece of advice around something, even though the value add truly could be a lot more than that. And, and I think, mm. yeah, that's where the industry's got to, got to work out how to, 
you know, how to kind of show consumers the value of, you know, getting your structuring right or getting your estate planning right. You know, it might cost you, you know, thousands of dollars up front, but the impact down the, down the line for your family or for you later on is enormous. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that um, holistic advice broadly makes no sense. It's specific advice that, that, that you need to get with the best specialists that do that inside and out. Um, because yeah, I, I totally agree that investing wise, you know, I mean, if, if, if you're thinking about that, you, you probably should be a client of Soxpot. Um, is Robo Advice giving investors a full sense of their own knowledge, thus preventing them from seeking full advice? There's a follow up question to that. Um, no, I don't quite. I'm, I mean, Robo Advice basically explains to people that, you know, people's knowledge about markets is very small relative to all the information out there. So you, you're basically accepting your lack of knowledge if you're using robot advice and accepting that lacking knowledge doesn't actually reduce your performance. In fact, by accepting your lack of knowledge, it improves your performance um, because you're accepting that the market is, is, you know, hard to beat basically. And so, no, I think using robot advice is basically acceptance that markets are hard to beat. And it's, um, you know, it's, you know, people either come across us because they see us as easy to use and they may not actually appreciate the investment benefits or they're a bit more sophisticated and maybe have traded stocks or, you know, sought more detailed advice in the past and realised it wasn't valuable. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I would say that, you know, robo-advice is, yeah, is kind of the antithesis of, of, of you, know, you know, thinking you can kind of actively make decisions. Hey, one thing that you've you've mentioned a couple of times, um, and 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 it's it's a it's a big thing. Um, you, you know, you mentioned fees and ultimately keeping your fees lower, and you know, and, and this is what what low cost pl- low cost platforms such as Stockspot allow for. Uh, have you got some research around how important um, lower fees are towards longer term returns? Well, I think I mean, it's a loaded question. I've, I've seen some of your research. You don't really need any research. You just put it into a compound calculator. <laughs> you know, you can find it on the website or anywhere online and you can see the impact. Um, so, yeah, fees has a big impact. You know, you, you, your behaviour has a big impact as well, like making the wrong decisions and selling and when markets are down or, you know, th- these things all have a big impact on your overall performance. Um, and that gets very difficult for people just to stick with a sensible, boring strategy, continue to top up, you know, not be frightened when markets fall, have some defensive assets so, you know, your emotions aren't, quite as wild when markets fall 40% like they did this year. I mean, all of these things are, um, you know, they're quite simple, but they're not easy is how I'd explain it. It's, it's, it's simple to do all these it's simple um, concepts, but it's not easy because it kind of goes against a lot of, you know, what we're, you know, kind of built to think we should be doing. I think, you know, I've said it before, but in most areas of life, the more you do and, and the more you're involved, the better your results, you know, when it comes to exercise or studying, but I think people think the more involved they are with their investing, the better the results there will be. But um, investing is one of the few areas where the more involved you are, there's no relationship with better results. Um, and, and in fact, by doing less, you, get, you, you know, actually get better results. I think that's a hard concept for people to accept because everything else in their life kind of tells them otherwise. You know, being lazy and sitting on the couch won't give you, you know, won't get you fit. And and not study won't help you get an A in your exam. So everyone thinks they need to be reading a paper and following markets and watching people on TV and, you know, picking stocks when really that's the last thing that you're doing. It's interesting, you know, I, you mentioned sort of, you know, um, the, the process being boring. I remember, you know, one of one of the, um, I also run that, that um, options business as well. 
uh, options trading. We teach traders trading plans and all that kind of stuff. You know, the most common feedback that we always laugh about this is that, God, your system is really boring. And we're like, if you want excitement out of trading, then you probably shouldn't be trading. Like, you are legitimately gambling. Yeah, I mean, for me, and, that's a solid platform. If it's got flashing lights and there's uh, confetti every time you trade, you want to be avoiding those platforms. <laughs> Any, anyone that can generate dopamine when you trade, I mean, to me, is, is trying to create a, you know, the wrong behaviours. And, you know, we've written about it many times. I think a lot of the trading apps out there do, um, you know, because they're motivated to cause people to trade, they, they drive the wrong behaviours. Mm. They, uh, they've, they've done some interesting research and in, and in, 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 into this, and I, I say they because I don't remember exactly who did the research. But um, uh, the research was done about how similar the the brain patterns are to between gambling and active trading, um, and um, and that's such a distorted part of the market. Um, there are, yeah, and to be fair, you know, we've got we've got very active traders who trade intraday, in and out, who do very very well in the market. Um, you know, and, and whether that be, you know, hundreds of trades a day to, you know, hundreds of trades over a couple of days. Um, and then you get a big chunk of people who come through very, very new to the market thinking that they can be day traders because they're seeing, you know, what it looks like and, and you know, they're sort of trading places or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've seen that all before in the 90s. You know, and I remember in 2006, 7, everyone wanted to be a trader. Um, yeah, you're right. I reckon on your platform, I'm sure there's the professionals who are, you know, have the, the systems and the strategy set up to succeed. You know, they're probably the ones that don't have the brain waves and, and the heart rate accelerating when things go well because they're kind of, they're trained professionals. Um, you know, it's more the amateurs that are, you know, they think they, they, they justify trading because they sort of think it's investing when it's not really. It actually for a lot of people is more similar to gambling. Um, you know, and that's why ASIC's cracking down on, you know, certain types of um, trading products at the moment that have a high percentage of losers. Mm. Yeah, and um, uh, I'm going to be uh, one to say that I think that they should be looking at, at online trading, active trading as well uh, for equity-based products as well because, you know, you take out some of the products you're mentioning, the CFDs and whatever of the world, um, you just you just find a different mechanism ultimately, right? If, if yeah, I mean, we, um, I mean, I've, I've been openly critical of some of the leveraged ETFs that are out there because they effectively, you know, encourage the same sort of behaviour like gambling, um, you know, at the wrong times. And, you know, the, the most bought ETF after the market had crashed was the the um, leveraged short market ETF. Um, you know, it wasn't something that the people anticipated. Yeah, it wasn't something that people anticipated and bought it in January. I mean, people bought it after it was too late and they've all dusted their money as, it's, as the market's arisen and this thing has fallen. So, yeah, you know, people try and time the market and they'll find products to do it, but ultimately all the evidence shows that they can't. So, you know... Yeah, if if you're trying to actually grow your wealth, you know it's not something you should be doing. Mm. You uh, you have a little bit of a, uh, of a of a theme that I've noticed. Um, you've mentioned you know late nineties. You've mentioned pre sort of the pre GFC peak uh, a couple of times, which I haven't heard before. Are you a little bit? I, and I know your investment strategy isn't going to change. Not the question, but are you a little bit topish? Uh, topish about uh, you, you, so you think that the market is a little bit topish and that and that ultimately that there is going to be a downward turn. I mean, we, if you read our blog, you'd see that we really have no idea. I mean, we're very clear about that on all of the stock spot content. Is nobody has any idea. You know, if you had a look at all the strategists we're predicting at the start of this year, I don't think too many of them would have predicted a forty percent market fall. Um, and they 
after the market fell 40%, I don't think anyone would have predicted a you know 50% or in some markets even more uh, rally. So is the market going to go down? I mean, absolutely. As time goes on, there'll be dips and, and peaks and troughs in the market. You know, when or where they are or how far they go, you know, is anyone's guess really. Um, yeah, I mean, we live in an interesting world now where probably markets have reacted differently to what people would expect since March, mainly due to, um, you know, monetary policy and, and stimulus that has, you know, supported, you know, wages and employment and, and business. Um, and, and so, you know, in order to predict the future now, not only do you have to get your kind of macroeconomics and the microeconomics right, you also have to anticipate what government's going to do. And, and yeah. you know, that kind of adds an extra dynamic that's even more difficult. So, yeah, I mean, we don't try and predict. We we just try and have a portfolio that's prepared for different types of markets, accepting that no one can mm. Does things like golden, etc. And last question for you. So ultimately, let's say that the market does absolutely collapse. Um, uh, what I mean, it's it's one of the things that I, I believe that, that you guys talk about a fair bit is the continuous investing and, and ultimately dollar cost averaging and things like that. Is that is that something that, that that's pretty prominent across your client base? Yeah, I mean, we did see a market collapse this year. It was like the biggest crash or the fastest crash since 1987 in, in like uh, 30 days or so. So this year was a great example. And then after, you know, immediately after March, we actually saw the biggest month of new deposits from our clients and, and that's continued throughout the year. And as a result, um, you know, most of our clients are now, you know, up versus where they were, you know, a year ago. I, I would say, you know, in, in the, I don't know, not 100%, but almost all of our clients would actually be up because... We rebalanced, you know, they've had a good asset allocation. They didn't sell when markets were down and they've probably topped up. So, yeah, I mean, if if in a year when we've just seen the biggest crash since 1987, most people can be making money. I think it, it shows that, yeah, just keeping the, um, you know, keeping the steady, steady ship um, driving forward and, and just topping up where you can is a good, you know, investing, um, you know, strategy. Hey, did I say correctly, I, I have a feeling I was, just on LinkedIn a little while ago, did you guys do just? Did you guys just do another rebalance just, just now? Yeah, as I my imagining things. I think I only just posted a few minutes before our podcast, but yeah, we. I mean, so we did a big rebalance in March. So yeah, you're really on top of things. Um, and then, mate, what we've I've, noticed, I've got a whole team following you. That's yeah, wow, well, you guys are <laughs> very quick. Um, um, yeah, we, we actually we noticed that our system was basically um, started to rebalance quite a few of our clients in the last few days of November. So, you know, what we've seen since March is Aussie shares are up over 40%. And as a result, as a percentage of people's portfolios, now Aussie shares is getting quite large or larger than the target weights. So um, for some clients, we've actually been trimming some Australian shares and buying some bonds or gold again. Um, you know, if, if you think about it, in March, yeah, we did the opposite. So we bought Aussie shares and sold gold. Now, since then, gold's actually down 8% and Aussie shares are up 42%. So there's like a 50% sort of switch between those two asset classes. And that's why we're now going the other way. Um, does it mean we think Aussie shares are going to go down? I mean, not necessarily. We're just kind of making sure the risk in our clients' portfolios doesn't get too high in case it does. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably will keep on going up next year if, if history is anything to go by. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't be, um, you know, managing your portfolio risk. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, it's very wise words. In terms of uh, staying on top, I literally opened up LinkedIn, uh, and the the blog post is the first thing that I've got on my feed. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm not I'm not I'm not stalking you that closely, just to see it. I haven't seen a like on it yet. 
<laughs> I, I was about to. Um, mate, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I think it's, it's been awesome. Uh, for uh, the guys that are going to be listening on the podcast, uh, stockspot.com.au, um, are, you doing, are you doing some, you're going to do some promotions for New Year? I'm just going to like, can you, can you do something for New Year? Bring on more clients? Can you come up with some good ideas for us? Like, send them through for sure. <laughs> Give everyone a bottle of wine. Yeah, um, a lot of people are spending it this time of year, but I mean, it, if you, uh, if you do have some money saved up, it's a good time to be investing as well. I mean, yeah, setting yourself up for the next year. Yeah, there's some interesting moves that typically happen in December um, and January um, and not always the most predicted. So, uh, mate, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, look forward to touching base next year and, uh, and welcome to the Open Markets. Yeah, my um, pleasure and thanks for having me on the show. And, yeah, I do love your show uh, acronym as well. So, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Hopefully so. you've got the right sort of listeners and they're not expecting something else. <laughs> yeah, we, we did have a bit of an unsubscribe rate the first time we sent it out, but, you know, we've, we've got the right audience now, I think. <laughs> Thanks so much, mate. I'll chat to you soon. Thanks, Ivan.